I just want to take a moment to, uh, to pray for those in our fellowship that are grieving the loss of, of their son, Jimmy Fraley. Lord, you know this family, and, and they're, they're mourning and grieving for the last several weeks. And before their uh, service, the memorial service coming up next week, we just pray that you would encourage them, that they, Lord, would um, just sense your presence. And, and Lord, for the Otaki family with Veronica, our sister in Christ, who is enduring a lung cancer right now, uh, we just pray that you would miraculously bring healing to her body. We ask God, uh, because you're able, and we pray for your will, and for Gus and the, the children, we pray that you would encourage them tonight. And Lord, there's others in our fellowship that are sick and hurting. We just lift them before you, the names you know, and even the fellowship here tonight know their names. So we pray for them. We just ask God that you bring comfort. You are the God of comfort, Lord, and we believe that you can do that work. And finally, Lord, we pray for our brother Chris and his uh, wife and the Augie and the other youth leaders and the youth that are in Mexico doing that work, uh, painting, helping, cleaning uh, the facility down there for the... Uh, the women and the orphan and their children, the women, and we just ask God that you would just do a neat, neat work through them, use them, Lord, and, and the, uh, the repair work that's going on. Give Chris wisdom, Lord, as he does that, and bring them back safely, we pray this week. And so, Lord, we, we just thank you for the, the power of prayer, and we just join with many others praying for these needs this evening. And and Lord, we also come before you as we're opening your word. We ask God that you would open it to us, that our minds and hearts would, would just come right to the page of Scripture, to these words, that they would uh, become just truth and light to us. Speak through your word, Lord, that you've spoken. And may we, as your people, bow before you in your word. In Jesus we pray, amen. All right, well, we come to Genesis chapter 2. Again, we've been in <clears throat> Genesis 1 for, for a long time. But first, I just want to take a moment to uh, just mention how these three chapters, the first three chapters of Genesis are very, very uh, important. They're pivotal. You can go ahead and turn the lights on, Jimmy, on the sides for people sitting over here so you can see. Um, they're very important, and we need to understand these three chapters and how they work. Chapter 1, obviously... It's just a chronology of creation. We've gone through that in detail. You go all the way through chapter 2, the first three verses of chapter 2, and you just get this chronology of God's creation. And we learn in that primarily that God created the heavens and the earth in six solar days, morning and evening. Uh, God has clearly defined that in the scriptures and so, a wonderful account of uh, creation in chapter 1. And then chapter 2 gives us a little bit more details, but it's specific on man, the creation of man. Chapter 1 gives us kind of the plants and stuff. God's preparing the earth for what? For man. And man's going to eat the plants. So God's prepared all these plants in chapter 1. Chapter 2 Man is placed in the garden. That's what we see tonight. We're, the placement of God in this garden that God has created specifically for man. And again, these are foundational chapters. Uh, they're, they're, just, they're different, but they have complementary details. And that's important for you to know as you approach these first 
couple of chapters. But chapter 2 really serves as an introduction to chapter 3, which is the fall of man. So, so Moses, in, in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, is giving us kind of a running start and kind of helping us understand where we're going because by the time we get to chapter 3, we come to the fall. Actually, we'll see, we'll see a little bit of that uh, tonight as uh, we see man in the garden. Now, last week we ended in verse 7 of chapter 2. Verse 7, look at verse 7 with me. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So what we learn from that is that man is created from the basic elements of the earth, that our bodies are just the chemistry of the earth. We're just made of dust. That's what the scripture tells us, the dust of the ground. And as I was preparing for this study, I, I, I always read J. Vernon McGee. I don't know if you listen to him on the radio, a great Bible teacher for many, many years. And if you don't, you should. If you have time, listen to Jay uh, on the radio. But he tells a story about a little boy who came to his mother and he said, Mom, are, is it true that we're really made from dust and after we die, we're going to go back to dust? And his mother said, well, yeah. And he said, well, I looked under my bed this morning and it looks like there's people coming and going. I thought that was kind of interesting. We're made out of dust, and really the point being is, is that all living beings are made out of this dust, just the elements, the elementary basic elements of the ground. And God did something to man that he didn't do to the animals. And we're supposed to get that idea as we go through chapter 1 and 2, more details here in chapter 2. But God formed man. This is my first point tonight. Again, notice how God formed man. It says, and the Lord God formed man from that dust that we just talked about. And the Hebrew word here, uh, yostar, yostar, is a very interesting word for the English formed. Formed is the word I'm defining here. Yostar is the Hebrew. And it's like a potter who squeezes and molds what? What does a potter mold? Clay. And through the Bible, we get that illustration, right, of man. And so here's this word, this Hebrew word, yastar. It means squeezing something into shape. And that's what God's doing with man here. And, and again, the more details here in chapter 2. So verse 3 of chapter 1, we see God in creation. He says, let there be. And there was light, and let there be, and there's water, and let there be, and there's earth, and let there be, let there be. And then finally he says, this huge change, and I've highlighted this, but again, it's important to see. He says, let us make man, verse 26, chapter 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so the difference in man is defined a little more clearly in chapter 2. So man is unique, that's the point here, in all of God's creation of living creatures, man, is unique. So in chapter 2, we get the details. God formed man out of the dust of the ground, or God formed man. And I love the way the psalmist describes man. Look, notice this verse, Psalm 8 here behind me. What is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist writes, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made man a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. That's all of creation. And you have put all things under his feet there. Alan Webster interprets that passage we just read like this. 
Evolution sees man as one step above apes. Scripture sees man as one step beneath angels. Very interesting in the viewpoint of, of man and who he is and where he fits into creation. But the primary mes- message, again, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and God makes it very, very clear here that everything in creation was made for man. And when you read chapter 1, just as you get up and you're eating your breakfast and you just open Genesis chapter 1 and you see each moment of creation there, you'll notice that God is is preparing everything in the universe for man. And then God forms man, chapter 2, verse 7. Now, just for a moment, and we've talked about the complexity of, of man, but I want to remind you of a couple of things again. Physically, when the sperm and egg come together, there's 23 different chromosomes from each male and female that come together that make up who that individual is going to be. And that person begins right there at conception, in my belief. I I believe we need to hold that true and God's word true and fight as much as we can against the abortion industry, the the death mills in our country, and, and the death politics in our country. We need to understand that God created man, and he does that in the womb there with these two sets of 23 chromosomes which come together at conception. And again, we think about, well, there's only, you know, 46 chromosomes there. I mean, what, what could be easier than that? Well, think about this. A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. That would correspond to about 500 million words or 2 million pages of information. And if you took 500 pages per book... That means the single human chromosome is equal to 4,000 volumes of information. 4,000. That's a lot of information. That's all about who that individual is going to be, how they're going to talk, how the, the, the color of their eyes. And the, it's just a beautiful picture of how God is uniquely and remarkably and how complex the human body is. A person develops miraculously inside the mother's womb. I've seen it happen five times in my own house. And I've seen my wife's body change, and I've seen the little motions and movements, and she smiles and and laughs and and enjoys every moment of that. Well, I'm sure there are moments she didn't enjoy, but mostly enjoy. Pregnancy is is, is difficult. It changes your body. Right, ladies? It's not easy, but it's a wonderful thing. It's something that men will never experience. Thank God. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And it, it, the, the fact that all of these bones, there's like 200 bones, and there's about 500 muscles that connect to those bones. And some of those mus- muscles work at will. You know, when you watch a baby, we're, we've got a little one-year-old uh, granddaughter that was at the house today, and you watch her, she gets up to walk, and she takes a few steps, and then she goes down, and she's, she's trying to work out all her muscles, telling them what to do. And then there's other muscles in your body that just work involuntarily, right? Your heart. You don't tell your heart to beat. You fall asleep. It just beats. And God has designed the body so wonderfully, it's, it's, a mil- it's a, uh, just a million billion nerve endings that come together and, and they form this nervous system in our body. It's just incredible, the complexity 
of our body. Our skin has more than two million sweat glands. And those sweat glands regulate the temperature in our body. And we're going to need them in about two months, right? We're enjoying this cool weather now. But in two months, two million sweat glands are going to regulate your body, the temperature there, not to mention the circulatory, pulmonary, digestive, immune, on and on it goes, the complexity of the eye, the ear, and all those things. But God made man out of the most basic elements, and he is the one that put them together so that they would work the way they do. It's incredible, isn't it? Your body is an incredible, uh, uh, just an example of God's creative power and his ability so I, I love that. God formed man. Then God did something wonderful in the creation of man that sets man apart. My next point here, God breathed into man. We looked at that last week, but again, he breathed into his nostrils, verse 7, the breath of life, and man became a living being. I told you last week the, the word there, the breath from God is ruach or spirit, that God put a spirit within man, not just air, but God's Spirit, He made man in, in his image. And so we have this peace of God in a sense, this soul, this eternal part of man. Now, again, it's a beautiful truth here about God breathing into man and creating him with his breath. Now, God doesn't have a mouth or lungs or breath, right? This is an anthropomorphism. I'm going to learn one day how to say that. This is just a uh, uh, God doesn't have a body, he's a spirit, but it's a, it's a term that's used to describe an indescribable God. Very difficult to do, but we have these words that describe God. And so God breathes life into the man. A very, very wonderful truth here. Life didn't happen by an accidental spark in a primordial pool that spawned a single cell that, that grew into higher... It's ridiculous, isn't it, when you think about it? It really is. Random process of chance over billions of years, and then the result is man. Not, that's not what the Bible teaches. I, I, it's, I think it's unscientific to even think that. I think you have to be more, have more faith as a scientist than a Christian in, in believing that personally. But the Bible tells us, the Bible teaches that we were... We were incredibly made, wonderfully made by a creator, by our God. And, and here, the New King James Version reads, and man became a living soul. I showed you this verse last week, but again, let me show you first thus. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, here we go, spirit, soul, and what? Body three parts of man, be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So there's other texts that teach that we are a triunity there, body, soul, and spirit. We're made in the image of God. In his likeness, he made us, breathed, breathing life into us, and we became a living being. So that's a reminder how man stands alone from all other living, uh, uh, the, the animal kingdom, the we're different than the animal kingdom. We stand alone. We're not an extension of any animals, not a monkey or ape or baboon. We're not an extension of anything. Man is made in the image of God, and God breathed into man a living soul. Now, beginning in verse 8, we get the location of man. So where is man at this point in time? Notice verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
So God put man in the garden. And I like to think about this where God placed man. Think about how God put man because it's obvious that God has placed man in a specific spot here. In this garden, and notice what it says, that God planted a garden. In other words, the world was made, and specifically that garden was made for man. God made it for man. He didn't make it for him. He made it for man. It's a beautiful truth that everything that you see, uh, the, the fact that we can worship a God as we look at creation is just evidence of a great creator, and, and we should be worshipers, and we should be find joy in, in creation, uh, God loves us and he wants us to respond. In this case, he takes Adam and he puts him in this garden. And Adam is just, can you imagine, a perfect garden. No sin at this point in time. There's no weeds. Everything's growing profusely. Everything's just being uh, taken care of. This, this blanket of water, this mist that comes over the land, it's just perfect conditions for everything to grow. You ever been in a greenhouse before? It's hard to breathe sometimes. It's, it's overwhelming to those of us that have asthma. You go in a greenhouse and it's, <gasps> I can't breathe. You know? But, but the, the moist air and it's all around and the plants just flourish and they grow, right? And so that's, that's what's happening here. God's placed... Adam, right in this garden, and the fact that God places man in the garden speaks of God's love. The fact that God puts Adam in the garden in this specially made place with all its vegetation and life and, and all of its food source, that God puts him right there, just kind of helps you understand that God really loves man. And we use the term paradise to describe heaven or to describe Eden, it's a paradise, it's perfect. It's a place of peace and tranquility. Uh, again, I, I like the mountains. Some of you like the beach, and that's, that's fine. But I love to go into the mountains, and I love to just walk in the hills, and I love to be out in nature and just tromping around, you know, and where there's nobody else around. And it's, you know, you always come across something. You know, you'll see a footprint or... You know, I've, we've been in the mountains in Montana, way up high. Nobody goes up there. And then all of a sudden you come across a cigarette butt or something. You know, it's insane. Yeah, but, but there's, you go into these places, these remote places, there's no sound. And I just love that. This, it's peaceful. It's beautiful. It's a paradise. And just think about Adam being there. You think about going on vacation. You think about Hawaii or Cancun or Yosemite, or the mountains, or someplace. You think about that, and you just go there because you want to have peace, right, and quiet. That's what God created in the garden for Adam. He had this perfect, perfect utopia, and he was placed there in paradise and no noise. No trash, no corruption, no sin. And here's an interesting thought. You and I as humans, as God's creation, we were created to live in paradise. You were not created to live in San Bernardino. You weren't created for this. You weren't created to handle the stress of a freeway. And you weren't created to, to be in stressful situations and trials. That's not what God wanted for you. That wasn't God's intention. God's intention was for you to be in the garden, just, just enjoying his creation. Now, my next point here is the location. Notice in verse 8, the Lord planted a garden eastward in where? Where is it? Eden. 
Eden. Now, Eden is something we all, we've heard that name. Uh, we, we get the idea there. But the, the word there is very interesting, and it means to plant or establish. And God has put this garden in this place called Eden, and it's eastward. Now, remember, this is pre-fall. The, the sin has not marred creation. This is pre-diluvial. In other words, there's been no breakup of the earth. It's this, this is the earth in its purest form, the way God originally created. The continents are together in one. There's only really one continent at this time. And from the middle of the continent comes this water, this living water that's watering the globe, and, and it's the garden is the middle of the, the place. And man is there, and it's just a perfect place. It's called Eden, no sin. And, and although man was given total dominion, chapter 1, God made the fish, and he says, you have dominion over them, over the whole planet. God made the plants, so you have dominion over all the plants. You control it all. But God puts them in a specific, special place, the garden, and that's where man is, is put there. If you go back to verse 28 of chapter 1, just look back there at chapter 1, verse 28. God tells man this, fill the earth, subdue it, and have what? Dominion. So man is to be dominant over creation. God has given man creation to rule over here, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every other living thing that moves on the earth. So the whole earth there, it says if you continue through there, you'll see that God looks at everything he made, and it was very good. So everything's good. Nothing's bad. There's no sin. Everything's good. But God now has put man in this special prepared place. This is God, or man's home. It's called the Garden of Eden. It's a paradise there. And it means, the word Eden there, it's very interesting. It, it means delight, or the Babylonians have a word called Eden ooh, Eden ooh is in ancient Babylonian means lush or green. And so here's this place, this garden, and it's described to be eastward. Eastward. What is that all about? Now you can go on the on the uh, uh, internet and you can find tons of articles. There's been many books written about where the garden is, kind of like Atlantis or you know, Machu Picchu, I guess they found that, you know, but, but there's different places in the world that it's like, oh, we've heard about this, but this, you know, I, like, I loved Arnie Sack Newsom, you know, looking for Arnie Sack Newsom in the center there. It's all fiction. Remember that? Voyage to the center there. That was, oh, I loved that when I was a little kid. But, but here we have this interesting place. It's called Eden, and it's eastward, but that's all we're given here. Now, from God's perspective, remember, God's perspective he has his eyes set on one piece of land in the whole world, and it's called the promised land. Did you know that? That's God's land, the promised land. That's why we love going to Israel. That's why when you go to Israel, you feel kind of akin to it. Everything kind of started there in that area, but that's God's land, and, and the garden was eastward of God's land. So that's that perspective there, but I, it's really important to, to understand that we don't know where Eden is. We just know it's east of, of the promised land, east of Israel somewhere. But I want to give you some evidence here. I've got some maps here. Um, I'm not sure what order they're in. This is kind of a funky one where you, uh, this one 
doctor of theology has come up with these rivers that flow, and this is where the Garden of Eden is, and this is ancient Mesopotamia here, and he, he gave all these different reasons for why he thought this was where it was. And then here's another map. This is the, my favorite map of all of them. See, it just shows Garden of Eden is east. It's just east of Israel. This is the one I think is, is probably the best, and there's another one. This is kind of an interesting one. Some people think that because the rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates, and they run down, they think that Eden was kind of down there where the Persian Gulf or the Ur of the Chaldees was. And again, they make these claims to all these things, but I'm going to show you how those claims are really erroneous. But let's look at the description first. So go to verse 10 of chapter 2, and let's look at the description, and then I'll describe it to you. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it parted and became four river heads. And that's kind of interesting. One river became four river heads. That's weird, isn't it? It's different. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is uh, one which skirts around the whole land of Chavilah. Chavilah. I love the way the Jews speak. It's great. And, and notice it says there's gold there, lots of gold from this one river. And you know, you, you watch the gold shows on TV, and they're always, they have to be where water is, right, to wash the gold out. And so this specific place, there's a lot of gold there. And then verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there too, these other two precious stones. The name, verse 13, of the second river is Gihon. Gihon, uh, it's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. That would be ancient Iraq. The name of the third river is Hidekel, and it's the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, even though we have a detailed description of the area here, uh, the, I think the key as we look at this is every one of these rivers, it's rivers, it's water. Remember, God makes water, and Jesus is the water of life, and water is important to us for many, many different reasons, right? I mean, all, you're all going to take a shower tonight or tomorrow, I hope. And you're going to drink water, and your body's made of water. Water is very important to us. It's really important. But I think the important thing here is that God uh, here in water is coming, and water is flourishing, and the land is, is, is happening. I mean, everything's growing, and there's a garden there, and, and the water is just coming from uh, this garden. Now, even though we have this detailed description that we just read, and that we have all this water. We still don't know where Eden is. And here's the reason why. And we're going to get to it when we get to Genesis chapter 6. What happens in Genesis 6? The flood. And the Bible says that the world as we know it radically changes. It breaks up. And then water goes over every peak and valley. And then all, everything's stirred up. Think of a giant washing machine. Okay? Water, dirt, rocks going everywhere, and then the water subsides. So you have thousands of feet of sediment, river courses changing, nothing's the same. And so that's why I believe that you can work as hard as you can at maps and geology and study, but I think the course of every river changed when the earth was broken up. And so that's why we don't know where it is. Besides, God says you can't go there. He's protecting it to keep us out for a reason. We'll discover that tonight. But the important fact here is that we're talking in this text, Genesis 2, this is pre-diluvial. So all these rivers 
would have changed course when the world was broken up and when this big washing machine and sedimentary layers ended up and nothing is going to be like it would have been in the time of Genesis chapter 2. Besides, and I love this, the word confirms it. Let me show you. Second Peter says, For this they will willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What's that? That's Genesis 1 by which the world that then existed perished, changed, everything is different. Why? Being flooded with water. Everything changed. So the scriptures, I believe, teach that there's no way that you can find these rivers, these four rivers, and the location of Eden. Well, it's oil, oil. That, that proves that it was right there. Well, it was probably there, but man, there's oil over a huge area. There's oil in Texas, there's oil in Iraq, there's oil in Kuwait, there's oil all over the place. And there's huge reserves there, there's no doubt there's big reserves. But very interestingly, the Bible says that the flood changed all of that. That's the point here. All of those original rivers couldn't have survived a global flood that's described in Genesis chapter 7. Let me show it to you, we'll get there in a year or so, no. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Every bit of land on this planet was covered with water. The waters prevailed 15 cubits above the highest peak, and the mountains were all covered. So you can just see, again, or think about this washing machine that I'm talking about, and how the topography would be radically changed. So we don't know exactly where Eden was. That's the point there. Now, verse 9 tells us in the garden where man is placed that there are two or two supernatural trees. That's my next point. Two supernatural trees in verse 9. Notice verse 9. And out of the ground, God, uh, the Lord God made every tree grow. So those are the trees. We're going back to trees here for a moment. That is pleasant to sight. Interesting. Trees, pleasant to the sight, and trees... Good for food. And then there's two trees. The tree of life was also in the middle. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when it comes to trees, it's, you know, if you've only lived in California, that's sad because you've never really seen trees. I mean, seriously. Well, we got trees in the mountains. Yeah, we do. We have cedars and pines up in the hills. I live in trees. I live right in the middle of a bunch of trees. But when you go back east, that's trees. I mean, how many have li ever lived in New England? Have you lived in New England or been there? A few of you, that's right. You, you, you grew up there, didn't you? So if you've lived in New England, that's trees. Hardwood forests, tall trees, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, they're beautiful trees, right? In California, you know what we have? We have palm trees. See, they even know that. Why? Because they're, they're ugly, aren't they? They're just like a stick with these spiny things on top. They're just, I mean, and they don't really give you much shade, do they? Do you park your car under a palm tree? Who does that? Who parks their car? So when God made trees, he, I don't think he's talking about palms here. I think he's talking about these beautiful hardwood trees and, and the redwood trees. Now, we see redwoods on the coast in Northern California. Have you ever been there? We've, I took my family up there when they were younger, and we camped in the redwood forest on the coast. That is awesome. It's been many years since we've done that. I don't 
know if we even had Philip and Ashley. I, I know the other boys went with us, and we, well, it was awesome. And the red, the tall redwoods right on the coast, it's a beautiful thing. But trees are beautiful, aren't they? And again, we, that's what God's saying. He made these beautiful trees. And the important point here in verse 9 is that there's, there's a lot of trees, and there's, the garden is filled with these trees. And God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight. And then at the end of verse 9, we get the two supernatural trees, which is really interesting. Supernatural. Now, did you catch that? You have natural trees and trees that give fruit and trees that are beautiful. And then you have these supernatural trees, the tree of life. Where is it planted? In the middle, right? The very center of the garden. And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we begin with the tree of life. My first point under there is it's in the middle of the garden, as it says. And why is it in the middle? So it's accessible to man. So it's accessible to everything. It's right dead center in the middle. And then the tree of life has this supernatural ability to sustain life. Unlike the other trees, the other trees are beautiful, they're big, they're, they're for food, but they're not supernatural like the tree of life. And the tree of life is interesting because it's because of the tree of life that man gets kicked out of the garden. You know what I mean by that, right? If you've been studying the Bible, you, you understand why I said that. Because if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life after they sinned, what would happen to them? They would have eternal life with their what? With their sin. And so God is going to ban them. He's going to chase them out. He's going he's to kick them out of the garden here right after they sin. Why? So, because he's merciful and he's loving, and he doesn't want them to live in their sin forever. Isn't that wonderful, the way God works? We say, well, why did God kick them out of the garden? Well, he did it because he loves them. He didn't want them to live eternally in their sin. So according to... Chapter 3, verse 22, let me just show it to you. You can look at it in your own Bible. But And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life to eat it. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but so that they wouldn't eat the other tree and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden, kicked them out of the garden. So think about it. Again, once they sin, they'd be removed from the garden, or they would have that. That's God's mercy. I love to think about the mercy of God and his love for us. He's so thoughtful of you and me. He cares about us. He wants to take care of our sin, and he did. Now, the other tree, so we have the tree of, of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the second tree I'm going to highlight here. And again, this is another real tree. It has real fruit, just like the other tree, but it's got supernatural ability here. We don't know what kind of tree it was. Now, tonight, right, while you guys were worshiping and I walked around, there was a gorgeous sunset in the, in the clouds. It was, and I was, I was standing there eating my apple. And I thought about my study. And many people think it was an apple that Eve ate. You know, I don't know why. Where did the apple come from anyway? Is it apple? Because they're so good, I guess. But we don't know what kind of tree it was. It was a beautiful tree, and it's a supernatural tree. But, um, and we know it was a good tree. Everything was good. No, no sin at this point, right? In chapter 2, there's no sin yet. It's in chapter 3. So we have everything that's good. All the trees are good. But this tree, eating it will produce knowledge of evil. And I say that because everything's good in the garden. Everything's good. And man is good. And he's complete. And it's very, everything's very good. 
except for this one thing. And this eating this fruit is going to cause the knowledge of evil. So man already knew how to be good. And God formed man. And he put him in the garden. And then look at verse 15. Jump all the way down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. And notice, to do work. To work. Look what it says. Tend and keep. And man's work, to tend and keep. Work is something that God has given to man. Work is a blessing. Work is a blessing. It's not a curse. Why do I say that? Because the curse hadn't happened yet. This is perfect world. Everything is very good. And God gave man a job. God gave man something to do. Now, do you hear what I'm saying here? I could take you to other verses in the Bible that say, you know, the sluggard, the person that doesn't work, always in the Bible is looked down on. But God initiated work. He did it because he knows it's good for man. Work is good. It's good to have something to do. And so what was man's work? Well, it was tending, very interesting there, to tend and to keep the garden. And that those words come from the same root word in the Hebrew, shamar. And it means this. This is what it means, to observe or to watch or to keep guard or to care for. That's, that's what the word shamar means, to keep and to tend. And so God has designed man to do Work. Let me show you a Proverbs here. I like the Proverbs are good. There's too many good ones. This is one I picked. In all labor, there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. And there's a lot of verses about idleness, idleness in the home, idleness on the, in the workplace. And in the New Testament, we hear about work and how we're to work for our master. We're to work hard. And we're going to get a little bit of that in a couple of weeks in Ephesians chapter 6 on Sunday morning, and how we're, as a Christian, to be honorable to our employer. We're supposed to work hard. But I love this, that part of Adam's perfect existence before the fall, God expects his children to what? To work. He expects it. That's, that's part of who we are. But then notice in verse 16, here's the, the first time you'll ever see this in the Bible, the word command. And the Lord God commanded the man, and he said this to the man, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. Remember, they were all beautiful, and some of them had fruit, so you can have them all. But, verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Die. Think of that, die. What's that mean? What does that mean? Does Adam know what that means? It's the first time it's been introduced, but God makes a command. He says, I expect this of you. You have everything in, in the world. You have dominion over it all. I put you in the best spot right here in the garden where all the water's flowing. You can eat and eat and eat everything and enjoy it. Keep it and tend it and watch it and enjoy it and rejoice over my creation. It's all for you. Just don't eat of this, this tree the knowledge of the good and evil, because when you eat it, you're going to die. So here we are in the garden, and here's the test for man. Do you know that God puts things before you and tests you? Did you know that? You'll see that. We're never to test God foolishly. We are to put our faith in practice and trust God for things. And we're trusting God for miracles. We should. You should trust the Lord 
to do miracle healings and show himself and do things. Trust him to do that. He doesn't always do it because it's not your will he's after, but his will. So we have to pray that way. We have to believe that God has a purpose. He has a purpose in life. He has a purpose in death. He has a purpose for it all. We don't know the purpose. We, we mourn over someone that's, that's died. But God has a purpose. We don't know what would have happened in their life if they would have lived longer. Maybe they would have rejected God. Maybe they're walking with the Lord, but they were going to be a real gnarl. So God says, you know what? I'm going to take you now. I, I don't know. I, don't, I think we'll probably find some of that truth in some of us because we know how desperately wicked our hearts are. But God has a purpose and a plan. We have to trust him for what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. But here's a test. And this test is going to determine man's loyalty to God. God just made everything for him. says, it's all yours now. You can have everything but that, that you can't have that. Have you ever, how many have kids here in the room? Raise your hand. Have you ever told your child in child rearing, you can't have that? Have you ever done that before? Again. And what do your children do immediately? What do they do? (laughs) What's that about? That's that's the, the heart. And so here's this test. And God says, you can't have this. This is forbidden. And when you eat of it, you're going to know evil and you're going to die. That's what God has. Now, keep in mind, in the Bible, when it says death or die, we're not talking about ceasing life. Remember, man's made in God's image. He's going to live forever. You have an eternal part of you. You're never going to die. Physically, I die. But this death is... This is what it means. It means, doesn't mean cessation of life. It means separation from God. And that's exactly what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate that forbidden fruit. What happened? They were kicked out of the presence of God. They were kicked out of the garden. Now, God had a purpose. He didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin. But there's another purpose as well that God cannot be. He's holy. He's righteous. He's true. And he can't be with sin. We had to go. We had to go. Which really, when you think of it in, the, in long terms, you, you understand redemption. You understand how God's going to bring man back through uh, the blood of his son. You're going to see what redemption means and how God is still merciful and how he loves. But men, and that includes you ladies too, men, mankind, our hearts are wicked. I wonder, every time I read that story, and I'm thinking, part of me says, ah, I wouldn't have done that. And then the other part of me says, yeah, I, would, I guess I would have done that. I, I think all of us kind of have gone through that. So eating the fruit, two things. Number one, it would show him evil, eating the fruit. Number two, he's going to die. He's going to be separate, separated from God. Now, every time, again, I see that, I, I think about, Adam and Eve, and I think about their innocence, and they're in this perfect place, and they're just like little babies. Really, seriously, that's what they were like. Totally innocent. They didn't know about evil. But the day they ate, God had warned them. He says, when you eat, you're going to lose all your innocence. You're going to lose it. You're going to know evil. I don't want you to know that. I want you to stay away from that. I don't want you to know. But but, but we want to know. It's like People Magazine. It's like... I want to know that. I want to know that. I want to know that. You know, we're all on the internet. We're all looking. We want to know. 
We, we read everything but the Bible sometimes, don't we? I, I fall in that category. I'm, I'm looking at Facebook. I'm reading this. I'm investing in all these things. But, but when it comes to God, this is what I need. This is life. And I really believe God wants us to spend more time uh, in his word. He doesn't want us to be aware of all the evil around us, but they disobeyed God's command. God had given Adam and Eve everything they could ever want. They had a perfect world. They had a perfect planet plentiful with food and water. God gave them as much as they wanted to eat and wonderful animals to enjoy. That's what the, scripture, or the scriptures tell us. But God gave them one prohibition. Don't eat of that tree. That's all he told them. Don't do that. But Adam did. And just like a child that disobeys his father or mom, that disobedience brought harm it brought harm. It brought a consequence to him. And he just wasn't content with what his father had given him. And then he lost this, this closeness with God because of his disobedience. He wanted to know good and evil and make his own choice. I want to do it my way. We see that in our children, don't we, as they grow up? I can say that again with five kids. They're independents. They're all independent. They want it their own way. They want their own car. They want their own things. They want their, you know, and they're still living at your house and whatever. But they want, they, well, they want independence. And we all wanted independence at one time, right? That's, that's, that's who we are. But this was the test. This was the test, and Adam had everything. And no reason really to disobey God, but he did. And that's why that sin was so inexcusable. He had no reason to disobey God, but he did. And that's why they were thrown out. Because when they found, you know, they ate the, the apple or the fruit or the whatever it was from that tree, they immediately knew evil and they immediately endured the consequence of their action. So their disobedience, it launched them into this death, this cycle of, of death. And so here's the good and bad news tonight in my closing comments. The scripture tells us that all of us, every one of us here, are sinners, and we all need salvation. That's the bad news. The good news is that God's provided forgiveness of sins through the death of his only son. And the resurrection, the power, we just celebrated that. That's the good news. And for the Christian, every day is resurrection day because every day we're reminded that, that because Jesus rose from the grave and in the power of the resurrection, we live. We live in that. So sin doesn't dominate us. Evil doesn't dominate me. I still think evil thoughts. I, I still have the flesh nature. I, I don't want to, but it doesn't dominate me. I submit to the Lord. I fill with the Holy Spirit. I can overcome Sin and evil because of Easter, because every day, for me, I celebrate the risen Lord. He, he, it's, it's the power of the cross, the resurrection that conquers sin and death. So here's how I want to end tonight, real quick. We just have a couple of minutes. Go to Romans 5. Romans 5. We're just going to read this section here, Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. But just a couple of verses I want you to see. Here's what the Bible this is, this is the bad news and the good news. What we just read, the description of what we just read, Paul gives us a little more insight. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
says, Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Who's the one man? Adam. And death was the result of Adam's sin. And death spread to everyone of his offspring. And we are all sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. All of us. Every one of us in this room. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, because all sinned. Now jump down to verse 18. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so through one man's, look at the capital M there, a man's righteousness. Who's that? That's Jesus. One man's righteous act, the free gift came. To who? That's the gospel. It comes to all men. You're responsible to choose it, though. You're not saved by sitting. You're saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture teaches. And it's through that one man. One man, sin entered the world. One man, righteous. Christ's righteous act to go to the cross with your sin, dying there. Blood sacrifice, paying the price. Propitiation is the theological term. Paying the price for your sin. Resulting, notice at the end of verse 18, in justification, another theological term. Justification is this, for you as a believer, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been justified. Here's an easy way to think of it. You're living a life, and because you put your faith in Christ, your life right now is just as if you've never sinned. Isn't that powerful? Why? Why? I, I don't feel that. I still feel a little unsaved. I, I do believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him just recently or last year, and I, sometimes I struggle with feeling, say, well, the truth is you've been justified. The act of justification is something God does. You don't do it. All you do is put your faith in Christ, and then God does all these things. This is one of the things he does. He sets you apart from your sin. It's just as if you had sin. Why? Because you put your faith in Christ. And Jesus went to the cross. He died for you. And one man, one man through his act brings deliverance. That is something to hallelujah over. That is something we're excited about. And again, here's the verse I want to end with. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Do you believe? Lord, I thank you for the word tonight. I'm so grateful for the gospel, for the truth of it. I can't work or earn my way anywhere, but I put my faith in Jesus and, and immediately I become born again. Immediately I become set apart. Immediately I become justified, forgiven. Oh, Lord, your, your plan to redeem man is, is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And one day... You're going to make a new heaven and new earth, a whole new created place for all those who believe in you. And so, Lord, tonight, I just pray for these, your children, sons and daughters here. I ask God that you would put this truth deep in their heart, that they would rejoice in the fact that they're, they've been justified, and that any here tonight that don't know Christ, that right now you would put your faith in Jesus, that you would understand from this brief description in this text that 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's because of that Adamic nature, because of our forefather and his disobedience. So Lord, bring salvation and hope and encouragement to these, your people. Bless them, I pray in Jesus. Amen.